Uh, this afternoon's reading is Matthew chapter 12, 38 to 50. And if you have the church Bibles, it's on page 817. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out from a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return from my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. We began this series uh, asking a couple of questions of this narrative that we're trying to track through, these five chapters of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 8 through 12, uh, that we've bitten off for this series. We asked a couple of questions, and those questions are still quite ripe today as we finish the series at the end of chapter 12 here. What are these people looking for in Jesus? That was one question. What are these people looking for? And what is Jesus looking for in them? Some of the Pharisees and the scribes come forward in verse 38 and speak to that first question. that They tell Jesus what they're looking for in him. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That's what they're looking for, a sign. Presumably a sign that will confirm for them that God's kingdom has come upon them, which is what Jesus was just talking through in in last week's text, if you recall. The kingdom of God having come upon them. And Jesus convicted them of their hard hearts that were causing them to say evil things about him as he proclaimed that kingdom having come. Now they come, they answer him by saying they're waiting to see a sign of that kingdom, we presume. If if it has really come is probably what they're trying to say. But, But Jesus had given them a sign of the kingdom. The whole section last week in the middle of chapter 12 was triggered by a sign when he cast out an evil spirit from a blind and mute man, healing him. 
And Jesus spoke to the fact that that he'd been doing this generally. He'd been casting out demons routinely in his ministry, not not to mention all the public healings, uh, over and over and instantly, just with, with a touch of his hand or a word from his mouth. What more sign could they possibly need? Perhaps it's polite rejection, a defense against his gospel, We want to see something different to what you've already done, Jesus. But it actually sounds like a cop-out. Jesus called them out that they needed to get their hearts right with God because his kingdom was here. And now it seems like they're scratching around for some kind of excuse to justify staying the way that they are. Uh, Do something even more epic, Jesus, or we're just going to keep dismissing you. They were offended, perhaps, by Jesus saying that they bear bad fruit because they are bad trees in last week's section. I mean, that was pretty heavy, wasn't it? And these are, after all, the religious elites of that day in that society. Who does Jesus think he is to rebuke them so harshly and so publicly all the time? If you think about the relational dynamic in this, They're putting Jesus under them. He must give us what we want before we will listen to him. They don't really sound like they're looking for something significant in Jesus. But then this is what fallen humanity does with God too, isn't it? As James just mentioned before, people say things like, if God were real, then such and such. Or if God was good, he'd etc. Or if God wanted us to X, then he should have Y first. People think they know better than God as to how things should roll. Which, as I say, if you think about it long enough, is actually a way of people saying that God is beneath them. Why would they then uh, need God in their minds? Why would anyone sit under God when in their minds they know better than him? In fact, what these scribes and Pharisees are saying here to Jesus is an old version of what has always been a standard classic objection to God. And without consciously knowing it, perhaps people actually use those kinds of statements for a deeper motive in their heart. It's to establish their own personal resistance. Resistance to God and resistance to them simply coming to God in submission and humble repentance and obedience to him. Jesus doesn't go to the obvious response. Did you notice that? (laughs) There have been so many signs. Open your eyes, Pharisees and scribes. It's been non-stop miracle, and even this conversation, as I say, was precipitated by his obvious display of power and authority over the the spiritual forces of evil. But, But curiously, Jesus doesn't play that card. Rather, he responds by saying to them yet again that their problem is that they are sinful in their hearts. Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so the only sign that can help them come into the kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming to them is his own death and resurrection. We know what he's talking about there. It's the only thing that can bring any of us into the kingdom of God that he has been proclaiming. And so Jesus' whole message has centred around repentance. If you recall how this ministry started in chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The religious elites here might think to be above all of that basic heart change kind of stuff that Jesus is talking about. And as if then maybe Jesus could just skip forward to something a bit more relevant to them, a bit more exciting for their academic minds. But Jesus keeps reminding them otherwise. Actually, that they are no different or better to any other people at any previous time. An evil generation, as he puts it, surely doesn't leave them excused. And then he clarifies that for them with two pagan points of reference. I mean, talk talk about offending their religious sensibilities. Uh, First of all, those pagans in in the days of Jonah, verse 41, to whom Jonah was sent to preach, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. The prophet Jonah went to the pagan city of Nineveh with a simple eight-word message of judgment from God, and the whole city repented. Now, Jesus was here in Israel, and, and yet these people hear his call to repent, and they just resist. They object to it. And yet Jesus is far greater than Jonah, for as he keeps saying, he has come to bring the kingdom of God. And yet even though that simply asks of us repentance, it it seems repentance cannot so easily be found around Jesus. Then he runs the second comparison, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Even a pagan queen once went to incredible lengths to come and sit under the wisdom and teaching of Solomon. She, a distant pagan, recognized the hand of Yahweh God with his king in old Israel, if you read the story. And yet Jesus is now here with the kingdom of heaven. But having even come right to these Jews, that they just won't sit under his wisdom, which is far greater than that of Solomon. These are, these are but two uh, examples of history. Uh, I'm sure Jesus could have gone on. Pagans at times have recognized God and responded to him, having the humility to repent and to sit under his wise teaching. What then is wrong with these people in Jesus' day, we might wonder? What are they looking for? Humanity is not improving over time, it would seem, from those two examples. 
And nor are these religious elites in Israel any closer to God than some pagans have been. Sin has excluded everyone from the kingdom of God and and Christ going into the belly of the earth is, is therefore required and that therefore will be their sign. Reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. As a third point of reference, though, Jesus steps out of history and gives it all to him in a parable form. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. People can keep refining themselves periodically, but if they do not come to God, then sin will just keep ravaging them. And this is somehow hardwired into us after the fall. It's not just these guys in the narrative. We do things to make ourselves feel righteous, to make ourselves feel proper. But in our sin... We do that without God. And so we can clean ourselves up now and then, sure. We can make ourselves look real nice in everyone else's eyes, I'm sure. But but if we haven't actually let God into our life, we'll be no better off. And actually we can get even further away from the kingdom of God by all of our religious effort while we keep on that cycle of of rinse and repeat, that treadmill, without actually just coming to God. Jesus seems to have put his finger on where these people are at. Because if they will not repent and sit under the wisdom of God, Everything they're doing is just pretense. To the most religious of all people in his day, Jesus has three times here hit them with this truth. You need saving from your sin and being remade new. And that is what Jesus has come to do. But will they be humble before God to receive it from him? So in a way, Jesus has has blown wide open the first one of our questions about these people and and what they're looking for. (laughs) He's actually telling them, you don't even know what you should be looking for in me. Our second question in this series ran the other way. What was Jesus looking for in these people? And I guess perhaps we've already got an answer to that from what Jesus just said to them. (laughs) He's looking for people who are humble enough to know their sin before God and to repent of it and to sit under from now on his wise teaching in their life. And Jesus puts himself at the centre of all of that. His greater than statements of chapter 12 just keep rolling through here to the end. He is greater than David, he told us. He's greater than the priest. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than Solomon. It is him that people must come to in repentance. 
And it's under him that they must sit if they would hear the wisdom of God. I guess there's all, uh, all kinds of people probably hanging around Jesus with all kinds of hearts and with all kinds of motives in those hearts. But, but what Jesus is looking for is disciples. Verse 49, it's there. He's looking for disciples. And, and here's the maths on that. What is a disciple? Verse 50, his disciples are those people who do the will of the Father. Look at it with me from verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We would rush straight into that family language. We love that family language. But let's stop first at that word disciple. A disciple is a student. A student who sits under and engages the teachings of a teacher. One who has a a constant association with that teacher and adopts all of their ways and methods in their life. And the way Jesus stretches his hand to his disciples and then says something actually so basic about them counters the instinct that we sometimes have to think that word disciples could only mean, you know, people in that time, his initial Jewish context, or maybe he's talking about his inner 12. It means those things, but it's so much bigger than that. He motions to his disciples as he says these words. And so, and so he defines the scope of that word. It's everyone who follows him into obedience to the will of the Father. Fittingly then, as we saw in our our earlier series a while back now in Matthew, the Christ, looking at the start and end of this gospel, the climax to the whole gospel is the Great Commission, where Jesus uses this disciple word for everyone who comes under his salvation and wisdom. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We want to be Jesus' brother or sister, don't we? We love that language. As Christians, we speak in that language all the time, don't we? And so we should. It's beautiful language. It's intimate language. It's powerful language for us when we contemplate just who Jesus is. It's wonderful, assuring family language. And God uses it of us. For if we belong to Christ, we are his brothers and sisters, the children of God the Father. But we must realise too that that language is for those who are Jesus' disciple. The, The two things are synonymous here according to Jesus in verse 49. Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. His mother and brothers are those who are his disciples. So what is it then? What does it look like to be Jesus' disciple? What is it to do the will of the Father, which is what he says here that his disciples do? 
Well, Jesus isn't talking about the sovereign will of the Father here. What God has ordained to come to pass, to serve out his sovereign plan. We like that idea of the Father's sovereign will over all things, and so we should. But sometimes I wonder if we might use that sense of God's will, his sovereign will, to cast off our responsibility. Oh, well, if it's God's will, I'm sure it'll happen, right? Like, why am I to bother? What Jesus means here, rather, is not God's sovereign will, but his will in terms of what he desires of us. And this is the sense of God's will, therefore, that you and I often break and contravene. And this is not so comfortable a territory for us to think about, but this is what Jesus wants us to think about here. And so we have to explore it. What is it that the Father would have us do? What does he desire of us? Jesus spoke a little bit about it earlier in the chapter at verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He said the same thing back in chapter 9 too, if you remember that far back. Go and learn what this means, he said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. On both of those occasions he was talking to the Pharisees, so it's probably somehow relevant to what he's trying to discuss with them now here at the end of our chapter and and our question at hand about what God desires of us. Mercy rather than sacrifice for one thing, which suggests that it's not cold or sterile religion that God wants of us, but a gracious heart. This is also actually the same point where our previous series in Matthew ended. The kingdom heart, do you remember? We worked through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 through 7, and and he said, as he brought it all together at the end of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, It doesn't seem to be red-hot religion that Jesus wants from us either. I wonder if doing what the will of the Father is, is not what Jesus has actually just said to them, that we repent of our sinful lives and live now on under the wisdom of Christ, letting him fill us up with what is good so that good flows out of us. So Jesus is looking for people who will repent, like the Ninevites did, verse 41. That much is clear. We can't get away from that. That that process of repentance is going to bring people into a living relationship with Jesus, into a living relationship with the Father, by, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their life to bring them to that point. Repentance, without doubt, Jesus is looking for. And those who come to in repentance will also then naturally sit under his wisdom and his teaching, like the Queen of the South, verse 42. 
Just as Matthew has kept reminding us that that Jesus has been devoted to teaching them, he keeps saying, teaching them in chapter 4, teaching them all the way through chapters 5 through 7, again in chapter 9 in this series, teaching. And and the word that these scribes and Pharisees use of Jesus here when they come to him in verse 38, teacher, they say, are we listening to Jesus' teachings is the question. John 14 sprung to my mind, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. About six different ways Jesus found saying that in John 14. This will be the sanctifying work of the Spirit in Jesus' disciples to teach them to come under his word. Sitting under his wisdom without question is what Jesus is looking for. And therein, through those two things, the work of the Spirit to remake us new, Jesus is looking for those who will be filled with good. Good fruit after their sin has been dealt with, instead of their just being ravaged by sin again and again, like the man in the parable, verse 43 to verse 45, who just left his heart vacant where the, where the evil used to be, just as Jesus has been reminding us and said even in that previous section, that what we need is to have such good being put into our hearts that that's what flows out of us. Too easily and and too comfortably, I reckon, we love the way Jesus proclaims forgiveness. And we might think to, to come and receive that. But if we truly repent of our sin, then we must want to turn from our sin. That's actually what repentance is about. And if we truly want to change, then we will truly want to change towards Jesus, to become more like him. So repentance actually goes hand in hand with obedience to Jesus' word. And that kind of change is the only thing that can yield any good fruit in our lives. This then, I think, is a useful kind of lens over what it is to be Jesus' disciple and and to thereby be doing the Father's will, to repent, to sit under Jesus' teaching and to let good be stored up and flowing out of us through all that. Which makes a couple of questions bubble out of all of this for you and me once we get under the narrative here of all these chapters we've been looking through. First, what are you looking for in Jesus? The only valid answer that Jesus has presented on that question is is that you should be desperately searching for the kingdom of God. And that's going to trigger in you your inescapable need, first of all, to come to Jesus in repentance, to receive that forgiveness of your sin. Because sin is rebellion against God and it's not going to continue into the kingdom of God. You must be looking for forgiveness from Jesus. And he told us, if you remember back in chapter 9, that he had authority to forgive your sins. But do you and have you repented of your sin? And so the second question flows out of that one. Where do you sit then with what Jesus is looking for in you? 
And again, Jesus has been pretty clear on that, if you can hear what he says. He, he doesn't want your lip service. He wants that you should follow him. Learn from him. Obey his teaching. He told us, if you recall, that if we don't take up our cross and follow him, we're not worthy of him. Chapter 10. Are you following the words and and the way of Jesus in your life? Are you Jesus' disciple? That's the fine point that answers both questions, really. What you are looking for and what he is looking for. Are you Jesus' disciple? I hope you've enjoyed this series, tracking through these chapters, thinking through Jesus' interactions with all these people. I hope it hasn't just been easy and and familiar kind of territory. This is not just narrative of of what went down when Jesus was in town. All the way through, Jesus has actually been taking every little opportunity to tell us things that are vital for our soul. He calls everyone who would come into the kingdom of God to repent and to follow him. If we are those who would come into the kingdom of God, then then this is far more than just some old Jewish narrative. It's therefore our own clarity of our own faith. I'll leave it with you. But let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures always and the privilege it is to sit together as your children and read through them. We thank you for this series, looking through these five chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew. Thank you for what Jesus touches on here in this last section today, that he came to die for our sin, to secure our forgiveness so that we may come into your presence, having been cleansed of our sin through him as we know. This Gospel that we know, Father, thank you for another reminder of it today from Jesus. But help us, Father by your Holy Spirit, to to not have our hearts just sitting around vacant, but slowly filling up with the good that you would have us focus on and do, not to be righteous in our own eyes, but, but because you have forgiven us and are making us new, help us to step into line with what you want to do. Help us to be humble to sit under Jesus as both our Saviour and our Lord and let our new hearts be filled with good works that are pleasing to you. Make us even more so Jesus' disciples. Father, we pray until the day of forever. Amen.